Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today we're talking about Hellraiser, specifically the 2022 reboot, which streamed on Hulu last year. And my guest is the production designer, Katrin Ader. Katrin, welcome to Below the Line. Thank you very much. Hi, it's nice to meet you. Glad to have you on the show. I saw the film when it came out last year. We got a little delayed in actually talking about it. Oh, and a warning for listeners, today's conversation may contain spoilers. Katrin, let's talk about the elephant in the room. The original came out in 1987, based on the Clive Barker short story. Talk to me about the approach to redoing what many consider a horror classic. Well, first the approach came with a lot of responsibility and honor, I think, because of the fan base that has been building for the last 35 years, which was something that definitely shook me um, in the beginning. Uh, Luckily, our director, David, had been involved with the material much, much longer and had a really good guideline as to how we are going to bring the 87 reboot into the present and, and so to say into the future. A lot of the concepts in 87, like BDSM and um, the female heroine being very brutal on screen and so forth, were revolutionary back then. And I think um, Clive Barker's world building ability is quite astonishing. And I've gained so much respect for him in how gracefully and uniquely he addressed certain themes I think a lot of the themes from back then have been implemented into modern day society over the last 35 years. BDSM, for example, costumes or techniques are nothing that has shock value anymore. And the same with the concept of the nucleus family and the female hero and the antagonists we had in 87. It was very important to the writers and our director to find a new approach and bring it probably on a grander scale, widen the outreach, you know, with everything that has changed in society over especially the last 15, 20 years, our themes for the movie had to change a lot and expand. So we broke away from uh, the theme of Catholicism and tried to broaden it into a universal approach. We broke away from a specific image of women And I really enjoyed what David did with our lead actor, Riley, in the role of desexualizing her and especially doing that in horror film, I thought was very interesting because women get sexualized so often or victimized in horror films. And he changed the approach to the identity of the Cenobites, which is also something that I think is crucially different. However, we tried to at the same time really honor many elements that Clive Barker brought to existence, especially who the Cenobites are and how they interact with this world. And we paid a lot of attention in honoring not only a certain sequence of actions of how they interact with humans and how the cube starts to unfold. We also tried to honor a certain architectural element when it comes closer in talking about the design that was some of the key elements that we brought into this modern interpretation of Hellraiser. And so talk to me about that collaboration, you working with David Bruckner, the director, the other elements of the collaboration, I'm sure 
props, hair, makeup, design, all of this coming together, as you say, in a way that manages to both be respectful of the original and yet feels very modern and current. Oh, that's great to hear. David um, and I collaborated on The Night House already that we filmed um, two years prior to Hellraiser. And so the great thing about it was that we already had gotten a lot of the getting to know each other out of the way. And there was a, a solid basis of understanding how each of us works. And with that, an invitation to really go into depth and ask a lot of questions. And I really appreciate David for his approach to filmmaking. He leaves the ego outside the door and allows all of us to do the same. And which really opens up a space where every question is valuable where it's very, not easy, it's intense at all times, but we can find our path. His intentions were absolutely to honor and work very closely with Clive Barker. And our collaboration, I think, was very meaningful in the sense that I had the opportunity to work with other designers to come in and help put this massive world together. So... We had a designer who focused entirely on the modernization or the new interpretation of the Cenobites themselves. Then I focused on the world building. And then in conversations, we realized that all of us had looked towards a computer game designer in Denmark whose work we really liked. So we brought him in, Martin Amborg to design the hero props, the cube and its variations. And that collaboration was really beautiful because it happened fairly early on in, a, in our concept design phase. And it allowed us to really explore which world building tools we want to use, um, where the color palette would land, how the hero props stand out in a very dark world that we intentionally created. And then how to marry a world of the Cenobites that almost goes into a sci-fi realm and bring it into our East Coast American reality. All of that was a tremendous learning experience, but also a deeply satisfying collaboration among many people in the film crew. Now, while it is more prop than production design, I was struck by the idea of the puzzle box having these different variations. Again, taking that original idea and propelling it in a new direction. And I, I mean, if that that is sort of a symbol, how that carries into production design overall. The key intent was to figure out overall symbolism. And when I put my pitch deck together for this Hellraiser, also knowing that we would be filming in Serbia and constantly exploring architectural elements that we could find there naturally like brutalist elements. We realized very quickly that elements from Art Deco have been brought to the box in the past and really collaborate well with a very masculine brutalist architecture. Now, the brutalism actually stayed kind of on the periphery. It just anchored us in the very beginning for concepts um, that mattered to us from the antagonistic side we wanted very oppressive architecture very crucial lighting design we wanted to create in the hero mansion that we built for void an environment that would mirror and possibly remind us of some of the egomaniacs the male egomaniacs that we are dealing with in 
present day society. We had a lot of inspiration for that. And then the cube itself with the gold and the black towards the art deco elements. And we thought that it could stand out very beautifully and really read in the environment and as it was transforming. Obviously our DP added a lot there with lighting and his choice of lenses, but we tried to marry the design on the cube and the colors with its environment, especially in the storyline circling around void in mirroring and choosing very similar textures and colors that we created some of the main rooms with. I want to talk more about the specific sets, but as you mentioned in passing, you filmed in Serbia. I'm curious what sort of challenges were involved in filming in that country? Yes, that's a good question. We had never been in Serbia before. We we heard a lot of stories of film productions going there successfully. One of our key concerns was, can we find a mansion in Serbia? And Serbia has a very different political history and politics often influence the way society grows and the way society grows influences how cities grow and what public spaces look like and personal spaces and environment looks like. And so I think our key surprise was that we were, um, how to say, promised a mansion. And when we ended up coming to Serbia and scouting, that mansion didn't manifest, or at least not the kind of mansion we needed. We needed a Jeffrey Epstein type mega mansion that screams capitalism and consumption and hedonism and blasphemy, basically. And so... The location scouting process became very intense. Out of our 12 weeks of prep, I think we scouted a good six, seven weeks to really puzzle together how we could build a vague impression of the Northeast of the United States. And luckily, Hellraiser is dark enough and set at night enough that we could really embrace the darker side of that world rather than bright, sunny beaches which aided us again because we we were able to to find some really beautiful um, environments that helped us. And for the main mansion, what ended up happening is that we filmed the exterior at the palace of the of the princess of the Serbian princess. And the interior we partially stitched together from different locations that we, augmented 150% and then built the major showroom and side rooms on stage over a course of two, three months. So that was the main challenge besides COVID and the language difference and, and all the other things. But the talent we met there in terms of craftsmanship was um, astonishing and beautiful. Now, I imagine that talent is actually really important to have on the ground because you're not going to have access to the kind of set decoration that you would here in the United States, whether it's New York, Atlanta, or LA. If you want a certain couch, you can probably go find it. But I just imagine you don't have the kind of availability of set deck on the ground in Serbia that you would at another location. Yes, you're absolutely right. And that's something where in the beginning we thought, and we were told, yeah, you can go to Paris and you can shop in London and you can shop in Vienna. And I was very excited about that possibility. <laughs> But with the pandemic being in full swing and then Serbia not being part of the European Union, 
and import laws being very vague and things getting stuck in customs for weeks at a time, we realized that we are risking too much and we didn't have unlimited resources either to just bring in truckloads from Paris. So um, we opted out to hire several set designers. I think we had two set designers in set deck to entirely focus on drawing and fabricating practical lighting and and hero furniture so we built a lot of it and that was quite amazing that the set decorator there was like yeah no problem we can build it all just just show us what you want <laughs> and so it was it was quite astonishing because that's nothing that I've ever done in the United States where I just built the sofa of my dreams for feature <laughs> film and we have the prop houses here that give us so many options something always works so that was definitely unique that we built so many furniture pieces and practical lights and we couldn't even afford wallpaper. So once I knew the wallpaper I liked and not afford, we couldn't afford to have it imported. So we recreated it our way and they had a lot of good ideas to do that. Well, let's talk again about the challenges from specific locations. And let's just start with one of the early ones, that playground where our main character gets her first view of the Cenobites. Talk to me about where you did that film and how it came together. We actually scouted massively for that playground because we wanted something that's um, very timeless, that reminds us of our experiences as children when we were playing on those metallic rough playgrounds back in the 80s and 90s. And after, I think, seeing 10, 15 playgrounds, we settled on one that was in the center of Belgrade. And I think we shot there on a Saturday night, so it was very busy. And it didn't have that key carousel, but it had the swings and it had um, the seesaws um, and, and it had the right environment that looked Boston enough. And so we created the merry-go-round to match what was existing. And then we came up with this idea of looking down on it from a bird's eye perspective as the cube starts transforming. And it allowed us to create a beautiful little symbolic cube-like border around it out of cement, which came in um, very handy and beautifully. And then we needed that vicinity to the bathroom and that bathroom didn't exist. So we we found a reference from a beautiful bathroom building out of New York City and ended up uh, recreating the facade and installing it on that playground with the benches and everything. So that sequence could take place the way David imagined it. And then we built the actual bathroom on stage. Now, because the interior of the bathroom, that's the first time we see one of these dimensional doorways opening up. Talk to me more about the challenge of doing that. Yeah, that was fun. So I, I knew a little bit from the night house that David really honors his community, his horror community. And he says they know when it's done in VFX and let's do as much practical as we can. So most of the blood is practical and the practical stunts we honored like breaking glass and all of that. But then he said, you know what? Those dimensional doorways, those set pieces should actually move and open and at least give us the first couple of seconds of transformation and then VFX can pick it up and do their thing. And so we did some anima set animation. We built a 
3D model um, on our computer and animated the sequences of where the set should split apart and which part should start moving first and second and third. So it had a fanning effect. And then we built it on stage. And in the end of the day, what we captured on camera were those three set pieces pulling away from us as the dimensional lighting from the Cenobites came in. And it was all people in the back kind of timed up tracking them. We had those set pieces on wheels and it slowly unfolded and it worked. And then there were a couple of more that we had to build in practical locations, which made it a little bit more difficult having moving walls there and how to automate it or if we could do it manually with our stunts team and special effects team. Yeah, and we did, I believe, a total of three of those that were all practical and caught on camera. So in the hospital, did you do that at the, on stage or was that an actual hospital? So it wasn't a hospital. It was a school and it was actually the Nikolai Tesla school, which I thought was <laughs> great. I'm such a fan of Tesla. This school was just beautiful. It had like the perfect tile floors and the Romanesque archways and the pillars. It just screamed Cenobites from the very beginning. And the entire scene with Maneker, who is the elderly woman who helps Boyd get his prey, when she gets captured by the Cenobites or taken by the Cenobites, that entire sequence, we, we filmed at a practical room there and we brought in walls that were on wheels that we moved and we coordinated again, like the first wall moves and then the Cenobite um, stone walls come out from a different direction. So it worked on three different levels, I would think, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that was done practically on, on location. And so oftentimes the production designer, I can imagine you're thinking about the next set where they're not filming yet, but with these kind of challenges, you just have an incredible team or did you need to actually be there to make these things work the way you expected? Well, the goal is in three months of prep or four months of prep that you build enough trust with your team. The ideal is that you can trust your team. I try and be there for all the rehearsals to really discuss problems and find solutions. And once I feel safe that everything works, you know, the hero team is always there. The art department, I feel like I'm only as good as my team is. So I have my backup. And in this instance, we had an onset art director with two people and the onset dresser. So there was a really great team on place. And when they film at four in the morning, the setup that I have is that we are all in a big text group. And whenever camera is turning around or we are going to a different scene, I ask for a screen grab to be sent to me so we can make last minute adjustments. And I think it worked out. I didn't get any angry phone calls from the AD. So <laughs> it all worked. <laughs> yes. Now you talked about the challenges of finding a set for the mansion. Talk to me about the mansion just as an idea and then finally making it reality. The mansion as an idea was supposed to be a place that could have been built by a very wealthy man somewhere on the East Coast, ideally the Northeast. We found a place, like I said, the, one of the princess palaces, she has a couple, that had enough of a resemblance to a Tuscan-inspired mansion to possibly fit somewhere in our region for the story. It was bland enough 
And it was classic enough that we were able to say, let's do some concept art. Most likely we'll have that kind of Faraday cage, the lattice work that Void builds um, to trap the Cenobites covering the mansion in all of our story. And the only time we actually really see it in its glory is in, in the backflash in a newspaper article. We did a bunch of upgrades on the exterior. First of all, we had to design the lattice work and then figure out how much of it do we have to build practically for then Jacob, our VFX supervisor, to continue building around the entire mansion. So I think we built the front and the side approximately maybe 120, 140 linear feet at to 22 feet tall. We created the latticework and then had a green screen barrier that um, VFX could continue it from there. We also built the practical gates that you see when you're inside and outside the mansion. That was all practical, if I remember correctly. Or maybe it was practical in a couple of scenes and VFX and the other. Whenever they were moving, it was VFX. And we took this exterior mansion and then David and I sat down and figured out the geography. And he always jokes, he says, in a horror film or the kind of horror films he makes, it seems like it should become a subgenre called the geographical horror because geography always plays so such an important role for him. He needs to understand where the corridor is that connects to the showroom and in what vicinity the lobby is, that this makes sense and how actors enter and then how to tie the entire action. And there's so much, so many action sequences in our film, how to tie all that together. So based on the exterior and the window placements and the entrances, we figured out on paper, we sketched out the actual geography. And then we scouted interior locations and found a couple that worked. And then based on these locations, we started drawing the showroom and the lobby area. And so the showroom is our biggest set. There was two stories set with the skylight and the vestibules on the side we built on stage. And then a couple of locations in order to stitch locations and set pieces together, we had to create on location and then build on stage as well. So there was a lot of double takes. Yeah, it was quite an endeavor for the little time we had. And I'm surprised how well it turned out. The feedback that we've gotten seems like it was convincing, which makes me happy to hear. This did feel uh, very real throughout the whole thing. I, to your credit and, and David's for giving it that attention. Yes, I love it. I love how detailed he is. It makes our work so much more enjoyable. When you get clear answers, you can go much deeper and be more effective, I think, in the design work. Were there other sets that you found either particularly challenging or are particularly proud of? Well, there was that this kind of sex dungeon below the showroom. In the original script, it had a pool and the set design. So the concept art we did for this version of the set was just beautiful. It reminded me of a Turkish bath with this gorgeous hexagonal pool in the middle. And the room we designed in blood red, which would have juxtaposed so well with the turquoise water or the blue water. The water we had to get rid of due to logistics and time and we ended up, instead of building it, we found an old hammam, a Turkish hammam, 
somewhere in a village outside of Belgrade that was an empty building with lots of dust and spider webs. And after scouting it, we realized that we could use that and really augment it enough to turn it into that sex dungeon. Had a lot of challenges. The ceilings, I think, were not even eight feet tall. There was a lot of asymmetry that we had to kind of cover up to make it a symmetrical space. We had to build a stairwell for the entrance and the gates. Um, <laughs> we augmented so much of it and again, built all the furniture and it turned out really nicely. Um, I was impressed. I thought that it was going to be much more challenging to film in the space. And if you ask personnel on the actual filming crew, they might have experienced it that way. But I was surprised how smooth that sequence went. And it looked really convincing and nice. I think I, I really enjoyed that. We had so many, I think we had 16 major sets and then a bunch of little sequences like the gate and there was just nothing. So we built almost everything. Well, it's a very impressive modernization of the story. And again, I think it's got legs. Do you think they're going to make more of these? I'm really curious. Clive Barker came to our premiere in Los Angeles last October and he complimented David that David took this helm on. And I think it was also the first of the last 11 that he said yes to and approved from his own creative version, which I think is outstanding after 30 years of making attempts to honor Hellraiser. I wouldn't be surprised if it keeps going. I mean, you know, our key Cenobite pinhead, who I think people even know, if even if they are not familiar with Hellraiser itself, is now a transgender a person, which is revolutionary, I think, and really cool. And the new interpretation of the Cenobites got a lot of feedback. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's more coming in the future, hopefully. And hopefully Clive will stay involved with it. Well, I appreciate the work you did and how it all came together. It stands on its own, whether there's sequels or not. Really enjoyed you taking us behind the scenes. I know we're going to call it a wrap. Katrine, great having you here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was wonderful talking with you. For those listeners who are fans of the horror genre, you might also enjoy the episode I released at the start of July about A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, which came out the same year as Clive Barker's original Hellraiser. Whatever your pleasures, fans will know what I did there. I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info at our website, blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media, so check it out. Catherine, where else can we see your work? The last two years, I worked on a television series called um, BMF, Black Mafia Family, that um, 50 Cent uh, Curtis Jackson produced. And that is a biographical piece about two brothers out of Detroit. So if you're interested in more of a realism, gangster, drug dealing type uh, story, that's something to watch uh, on Stars. And then I'm in pre-production for like two or three movies that are kind of on constant holds and stop and go and stop and go with the strike going on. But I'm very excited about one of them named um, Man in My Basement, which hopefully we will complete soon. And Three Months is Out, starring Troy Sivan. That was a movie I did um, before we started BMF. And that's, I think, MTV and some streaming platform. Katerine, we'll watch for those projects and come back on the show. You were a great guest. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Closing credits, thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and to all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. This concludes season 16 of the podcast, but new episodes are queued up and ready to go, so I suspect the break will be short if we take any break at all. Thanks for listening once again from Below the Line.